You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 6th of January 2023 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippie, coming up on today's programme. The contrast between House Democrats on the chaos and confusion taking place on the other side of the aisle could not be more clear. For the third straight day, Republicans in the House of Representatives failed to elect a speaker. We find out if Croatia is in the throes of euro price hikes just days after adopting the currency. Then we check in with South America to assess the first week of Brazil's new president, Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, and Germany, where their public transport is getting a little colder. And finally, Andrew Müller will be here to fill us in on the news stories we may have missed, but need to know about. The citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. All that's right here on The Briefing with me, Marcus Hippim. First to Washington, D.C., where the House voted to adjourn for the day after Kevin McCarthy was blocked for the 11th time in his bid to become Speaker. A group of 20 Republican dissidents have yet to agree on a deal that satisfies their demands. The stalemate has left House Republicans fractured after they reclaimed the majority in the November election and has stopped all other business in the chamber. Joining me for more is Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jemmer, Good morning to you, Chris. How desperate is this situation getting? <laughs> well, it, it's, it is desperate, if you want to put it that way. Yes, Marcus, there, there really isn't a clear sign of how Republicans are going to get out of this. I can say that at the moment that they adjourned last night, as you mentioned, there was movement towards a compromise. If you talk to Kevin McCarthy's allies and you heard him speaking to reporters yesterday, he would tell you that he is optimistic, that he believes that he is nearing a deal that would um, that would see some of the 20 uh sort of, you know, vote for him. Uh, he's, he's hopeful of some kind of breakthrough. The key, though, is that even if there is going to be a deal, it doesn't look like it would be a deal with all 20. It would be a deal with some of them. We don't know exactly how many. Is it 10? Is it 5? Is it 15? And that is absolutely key here, Marcus, because Kevin McCarthy, at the end of the day, he needs 16. He can only have four vote against him of those 20. Um, and the odds of him actually getting down to that number seem incredibly slim still. There are enough members of the House Republicans who are in the, you know, never Kevin camp, as they're called, who simply won't won't vote for him no matter what kind of deal is reached. How he manages to convince those people, there would be a lot of arm twisting and threats and, and whatever else might happen if, you know, some of the other 20 cave first. But it's still not clear he'll ever get there. It's a really difficult situation indeed. What kind of concessions has McCarthy been offering so far? What would that possible compromise look like? 
So, if you will, there's there's two things going on in this in this entire vote, right? It's 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 partly about Kevin McCarthy himself and whether you trust him, and then when it comes to the compromises, it's about rules. It's about how the House is run, and so part of the concessions that Kevin McCarthy is is offering now, one of them is, for example. Um, a, a motion to vacate, as it's called. Basically, the idea is that one Republican, one member of the House would have the power to call a vote on the Speaker at any time, essentially telling him he has to vacate the chair and reapply for the job. So we could be back in this position any day in the next two years. It should be said this is actually how things were run for a long time. John Boehner, the former Republican uh, leader back in 2015, was sort of ousted as in, in part due to the threats of this kind of nature. And it was Nancy Pelosi who did away with this idea, the Democratic uh, Speaker of the House. She did away with this simple, you know, one person can can issue a motion to vacate at any time. But that said, in the past, it wasn't used very much. It was not a rule that, that existed. I mean, it was a rule that existed, but it wasn't used very much, hasn't been used in the last hundred years or so. But given the Republican the Republican Party you have now, given the style of House Republicans you have now, there's a bigger chance that they could use such a rule. So a lot of people are worried about that. The other thing, though, that he has compromised on is just who who can help make the rules as Congress, as the House continues. There's a rules committee. It's a it's a committee that essentially decides how bills are put forward, how they're how they're made all of these things, they kind of see bills before they end up on the floor. And that's something where the, this Freedom Caucus, which is a, a sort of conservative block of Republicans uh, who form the majority of the, this 20, this band of 20 that are opposing McCarthy, they want to sit on the Rules Committee. They want to have a say on the Rules Committee. It's usually something that only leadership in Congress, only the House Republican leadership and its allies would typically sit on. So they basically just want to have much more say over the rules process and how bills are made. If they get those concessions, then as I say, maybe, who knows, half of the 20 might agree, but that still wouldn't be enough to get Kevin McCarthy over the line. What is happening today and how much longer do you think this saga will have to continue? Oh, that is anyone's guess, Marcus, in terms of how long this saga will continue. It, it really is anyone who tries to read the tea leaves on this. Uh, <laughs> it's pretty tricky. But they will start up again at noon. There will be more votes. Um, and, you know, the key thing to watch essentially is, yes, how many, if, if there is some kind of deal, if they announce a deal before noon or at some point over the course of this day, how many Republicans are going to switch and end up voting for Kevin McCarthy? After that, it becomes something of a war of attrition trying to convince any holdouts to maybe switch their vote as well. But that could still take days, weeks. We, we, we really don't know. Some say they're prepared to go on for, for quite a long time. And that's true of both camps, the holdouts, but also Kevin McCarthy himself. He's not willing to give up until he really has to. Monocles, Chris Jermak in Washington, D.C. Thank you very much for joining us today. You are with The Briefing.
It is almost 21.08 in Tokyo, 12.08 here in London and 7.08 a.m. in Washington, D.C. Now we head to Ljubljana to check in with our Balkans correspondent Guy Deloni, who was in Croatia yesterday to assess how successfully the country has adopted the euro. Guy, welcome to the programme. So how is it going so far? Well, Marcus, uh, the euro was introduced as the currency on the 1st of January, and uh, you can still pay with Kuna for another week or so. They've got this uh, dual payment system going on uh, until the middle of the month. And as you can imagine at the moment, life is a riot of uh, dual pricing, mental arithmetic, and no little consternation. As, as people, you know, some people are paying in euros and asking for their change in kuna. Other people paying in kuna and asking for their change in euros. People getting utterly confused about what equals what. And uh, yes, lo- lots of queues at checkouts of people are paying in cash and uh, retailers dearly wishing that everybody would just pay with a card. Well, Guy, I, I happen to be in Finland myself when Finland adopted the euro. And I remember that there was a, a fair bit of complaining. How, how happy are people in Croatia now? <laughs> If you read the headlines, they're, they're very unhappy. So the, the headlines are more or less saying every day, the headlines I'm reading is saying, how much is a cup of coffee? What are they charging for bread? What are the prices in the bakeries? Who's gouging the prices? This is the narrative that's that's going on in the media. And when I was, you know, just collaring people yesterday on my way around Zagreb, a lot of them were saying, yeah, I reckon they've put the prices up sneakily uh, at the cafe that I usually go to. Yes, bread does seem a bit more expensive um, because they reckon all the prices are being rounded up uh, when they've done this exchange between the, the, the kuna and the euro, uh, rather than being rounded down or staying the same. And uh, people are calling for the government to get involved and take action against duplicitous retailers. It's all of that. I suppose, you know, it's very much as expected. I would have been surprised if there hadn't been these sort of complaints when, when the currency switched over but it's been a very hot topic and the government's been very keen to be doing stuff about it okay what is the government doing now well, it's been meeting retailers. It's been meeting the Chamber of Commerce. The retailers, of course, are taking great umbrage, saying uh, that the government, in essence, is calling them as a trade uh, deceitful, and they really don't take very kindly to this at all. Um, the, the government is saying, well, if these retailers are putting up prices sneakily, uh, we're going to take action against them. Though they've stopped short of any sort of legislation. Uh, they did come out with a resolution after a cabinet meeting yesterday, uh, calling on them to ensure that all prices were the same as the levels on the 31st of December and they have this this outfit called the state inspectorate and they have something similar here in Slovenia I don't know what they're like in Finland Marcus but uh, the state inspectorate are people who go around shops and more or less check if they're breaking any sorts of regulations and you'll actually find they'll they'll sort of tape off shops closed for a week if they've they've infringed if they haven't given somebody a, a receipt from the till or something um, you find these these shops are sort of taped off closed for a week by the financial authorities um, you can't come in. So they're threatening to do a lot more of that if they catch any people, you know, dubiously sticking up their prices. And they say if there there are transgressions, the maximum fines are more than €26,000. I don't know what that would have been in Kuna, though. Guy, we've been talking about people complaining now, but what are the actual benefits of Croatia adopting the euro? Let's talk about that. 
Well, I, I think a lot of people will be very relieved. I mean, as somebody who regularly travels to Croatia, I'm relieved. I, I no longer have to worry about whether I've got Kuna in my pocket or, for that matter, um, you know, finding a cash machine that'll pay out Kuna to me without charging me, you know, four and a half euros for the privilege of doing so. Um, although I managed to find a euro cash machine in Zagreb yesterday, which did exactly that. But, you know, if you're a regular traveller to Croatia, obviously that isn't going to be so much of a worry anymore. So there's an obvious impact on that sort of spending. Tourists coming in won't have to do any of those mental calculations anymore. The, the value is going to be a lot more transparent. People aren't going to wonder if they're going to get a good deal or if they're going to get ripped off if they're paying in Kuna. They'll know exactly what it is in euro. Um, I spoke to the governor of the National Bank. He says one of the biggest th- uh, pluses is going to be the end of this currency risk, which has always been there for businesses and individuals in Croatia. And there was a big problem a few years ago where a lot of people had uh, mortgages, home loans, denominated in Swiss francs. And then, of course, the Swiss franc massively increased in, in value against both the euro and by extension, the the Croatian kuna, and that caused a lot of pain to a lot of people. Well, if your national currency is now the euro, well, you're not going to get into trouble if you are taking out loans in euro or indeed investing in euro. You know exactly where you are. All of this transparency is going to help businesses as well. It's going to mean that people feel a lot more, more secure investing and also that imports and exports should be more simple and, you know, hopefully increase trade and productivity all round. That was Monaco's Guy Delory. Thank you very much. It's 12.13 here in London. Here is Emma Searle with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Russian troops have started a temporary ceasefire on the Ukrainian front line to mark Orthodox Christmas. Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky has rejected the calls for a truce, accusing Russia of wanting to halt Kyiv's progress in the bitter fight in eastern Ukraine. China is seeking to minimize the possibility of a major new COVID-19 outbreak during this month's Lunar New Year travel rush, following the end of most pandemic containment measures. Authorities expect more than two billion trips to be made during the week-long festival season, the most important time for visiting family and friends in the traditional Chinese calendar. Sixteen people have died after a bus crashed into a stationary truck overnight in the northern Ugandan district of Oyam. The victims were travelling in the commuter bus from the capital Kampala to Gulu when the vehicle ran into the truck loaded with goods at a Debe trading centre. And new laws that force tobacco companies to pay the cost for cleaning up millions of cigarettes comes into effect across Spain today. The new rules were approved last year as part of a law banning single-use plastics, such as cutlery and straws, created in response to a European Union directive. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Emma. And now to Buenos Aires, where Monaco's Latin America Affairs correspondent Lucinda Elliott is joining us to give us a roundup of stories from the region. Good morning to you. Lucinda, shall we talk about Lula da Silva and his first week as president of Brazil? How has it all gone? What are the papers saying? Yeah, so well, with the exception of Ecuador, Uruguay and Paraguay, most countries now in South America have left-leaning governments and almost all made an effort to go to Brasilia last weekend to Lula's inauguration, given Brazil's position as as the biggest economy in the region. Um, In Uruguay, the topic was very much about how not only the current president of theirs, Lacayo Poe, went to the inauguration, but also 
former presidents Mujica and Sanguinetti, who were of different political leanings, all three turned up in a sign of u- unity, which is which is unusual in this polarized political environment. But talk has inevitably turned to where Bolsonaro was. Uh, several of the papers in Argentina and Chile were following actually what he was up to with a picture of the former president in KFC, the fast food joint in Florida, as the ceremony was taking place, obviously thousands of miles away. But broadly, the opinion columns have turned to how Lula will be able to govern. Congress is very divided in Brazil and his workers' party doesn't really have a strong majority. So Brazil being an important trading partner for many in the region, they're saying, you know, how much will he be able to prioritize international trade when he clearly has mounting domestic challenges in Brazil? Let's continue to look at what what this means for for trading relationship with the wider region. What is your analysis? What kind of consequences could Lula's leadership have on trade with the country's neighbors and, for example, with the Mercosur bloc? Yeah. So, in terms of Mercosur, there are, there are now kind of rumors swirling that Lula may want to resurrect these sort of old ideological ties to the likes of Bolivia and to Venezuela, a reminder that Venezuela was pushed out of the Mercosur bloc on grounds that Maduro has been governing unlawfully. And so this is a big moment. You know, will this group of countries go back several steps, becoming even less about real trade and business and more an alignment of leftist ideals, which quite frankly, none of these economies can afford? Or will it modernize? You know, Uruguay has been arguing that the bloc does need to do so. It needs to get a deal with the EU and possibly with China. And none of these in the 30 years or so that Mercosur has been around have been achieved. So so let's see what Lula and and this, this new government does. I hear he has trips to Argentina, China and, and to the US that it will be among his first. Well, let's continue to Chile next. We've been talking about the country's issue with its constitution. The draft text was rejected in a referendum back in September and something possibly positive. Now the country has come to an agreement on who will draft the country's next constitution. What's the latest? Yeah, so Marcus, Chile is racing to get a new constituent council set up and improved Uh, approved by its Senate. Um, Here in the south of South America, we're in school holiday mode. Congress in Chile will close in February. And so in order for the government to stick to a reasonable timeline, this council needs to be up and running by the middle of the year so that they can start drafting a new text and then that text will be put to a public vote. And, you know, this process follows, as you say, the rejection of a constitution that was presented and voted on in September. Chileans broadly felt that the the new document was just too left leaning, that it that it lacked clarity, and that the people who wrote it, although elected by the public, perhaps lacked the expertise needed when when drafting such a document. And so this new body that Congress has now agreed on will actually include a group of professionals, an advisory board, um, as well as members of the public, um, indigenous community representatives, etc. But they really need to get going because this was a campaign promise that that Boric made and it has been a priority for Chileans actually since the unrest in 2019. So we're many years on from that. Just finally, Lucinda, in other news, several South American nations are on the 2023 Condé Nast Traveller Destinations list. What can you tell us about Mendoza in Argentina? Yeah, so Mendoza made the list. It, it sits at the foot of the Andes, but really it's all about wine. And I think uh, one of the reasons why it's been recognized is actually for how 
innovative and, and the sort of the sustainable credentials many of the wineries have in Argentina. There's one called Zonda at Bodega Lagar, which is organic. It, it's B Corp certified, um, but it's also going to mark its 125th anniversary in 2023. And all around Mendoza, there's been this series of, you know, new stylish restaurants, um, hotel openings, many of which are actually spearheaded by women. So, yeah, for any wine lovers, um, and certainly with the way that the exchange rate is in Argentina at the moment, it's one to keep an eye on. Just don't come in the height of summer, maybe a little bit too hot for, for going around vineyards. A very good recommendation there. Thank you very much, Monocle's Lucinda Elliott. You are with The Briefing. You are back with The Briefing on Monocle 24. We cross over to Berlin next to check in on the biggest news making headlines there. I'm joined by Monocle's correspondent in the capital, Gimbali Bradley. Welcome to the programme and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you too. Gimbali, let's first talk about the debate taking place in Germany after riots on New Year's Eve. Reports are saying that over 40 police officers were hurt in Berlin alone and there were dozens of attacks on firefighters. How good of a picture do we have now about what actually happened in Berlin, for example? Uh, Each day there are new social media films coming through. There are more reports on who the uh, suspects were. 145 people, mostly young men, were arrested They're actually already set free. There hasn't been any consequence yet. Um, And the nationalities were broken down of these young men, um, which is kind of unleashing a few new discussions about how to handle this problem. So so there are voices indeed saying that migration is one of the reasons that led to this violence. Tell us more about that. Uh, Yeah. I mean, it's, this has been a difficult topic in Germany for a longer time. And one does think back on the New Year's 2015-16, when there were quite a few attacks in Cologne, which were attributed especially at that time to the refugee influx. But what's interesting is the, of the 145 uh, suspects, 45 of them are German. And they counted 27 Afghans and 21 Syrians, and the rest of the 18 nations aren't listed anywhere in the news. Um, So it's quite interesting that not a lot of people are talking about the fact that it's 45 Germans. Um, What is coming up quite a lot is just the fact that young men, and of course many of them are of migration background, are a bit aimless. Why... Why is violence the answer on a New Year's Eve? Was it about alcohol? Was it about um, the pandemic? You know, a lot of the social programs in the neighborhood in Berlin where where the most violence took place, which is called Neukölln, um, were not running in the past two, three years. So is it kind of a matter of young lost men, some German and some not German, who think this is a fun thing to do on New Year's Eve? Mm. Many questions, and 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 I bet the debate is going to continue. Yeah. What is interesting that is that police did indeed reveal those nationalities. A total of 18 different nationalities were recorded, and indeed, as you said, 45 of the suspects have German citizenship. What are we meant to do with that information? Uh, I mean, there, there have been a few different discussions on the news. Um, a lot of politicians here, especially the Bürgermeister, the mayor of that district, Martin Heiko, um, says we shouldn't be thinking about failed integration measures. Um, we have to be careful, not especially in Germany, not to just attribute this to possibly racist interpretations. And a lot of the social programs here have been doing very well. But yeah, the 
it's tricky. Um, young men, almost all young men, um, and how do we deal with certain burning points um, in the city? Is something going mm. to change after that? I heard there's been debate, for example, about banning fireworks. Yeah, uh, that's actually the biggest thing there have in, in other nations, including the US where I live. Um, there are no provisions for private firework use. My whole life, I grew up with one one or two different firework displays that you'd go to to look at. Um, that's tricky here because it's such a deep tradition that you buy your fireworks or even these little sparklers and you shoot them off in the balconies. And it's not the first time, of course, that people have talked about this. Um, people get hurt every single year at New Year's, usually by accident. This was definitely, the things that happened this year were definitely not accidents. Um, there's some talk in Berlin about increasing the number of firework-free zones, which do exist around rest homes, people, you know, homes for older people, and around churches. Um, but the problem with that is that, again, you need more police, um, more security to enforce those. It's an enforcement problem. So that's up in the air still, too. Well, Kimberly, I also know that you weren't where that unrest was taking place on New Year's Eve because mm. you live in the outskirts of Berlin, mm. somewhere very nice. I'm still wondering, do you take U-Bahn because thermostats are being turned down in the Berlin U-Bahn? I do take the U-Bahn very frequently because I live in the suburbs and I don't have a car. So I'm very often on public transport. The city officials have announced that they will be reducing the temperature on the U-Bahn. How cold is it going to get? 15 degrees in Fahrenheit, that's 59. That sounds kind of cold. <laughs> but what reassured me, I live actually closer to S-Bahns. I shift into the U-Bahns. The S-Bahns will stay, 19 degrees has been the upper limit for public spaces this winter. It used to be a bit higher. Um, but Germany, of course, is saving energy because so much of our energy was uh, dependent on Russia. And they've tightened, tightened the screws a bit on those things where we've divested ourselves from depending on Russia. Um, the U-Bahn, to be perfectly honest, is usually so full that I'm not so concerned about feeling cold on it. There's a lot of body heat on the U-Bahn. And S-Bahn is going <laughs> to take a different approach to saving energy. So that's where yeah. the temperature is going to stay as it is. Yeah, it's staying. S-Bahn is usually less, it's less crowded where I live. And the, the, the wagons are a bit larger. There's a bit more breathing space in the S-Bahn. Um, but they'll stay where they are. I'm not quite sure why. They, the differential. Um they run on slightly different tracks. So I'm hoping that Berlin continues to save energy any, everywhere. There are, um, they are cooling, uh, all, like I said, all public spaces in the city to 19 degrees. And it has made a difference, I've heard. Have you seen any other energy-saving measures? How visible are they in the German capital now? They're not terrifically visible. There are a couple of warm zones in the city for people who may or may not be... Uh, have access to warm spaces at home and they need to save money. People on fixed incomes, for example, in the new National Gallery and in Humboldt Forum, there are spaces for people to sit. They, they get free tea. Um, the, the, the opposite, I guess, of what I what we're actually talking about. But it's interesting that the city's reaching out to people who are, cannot heat their homes. And that you do see if you're looking for it in libraries as well. What I am hearing from my circles is that most of us are not heating our homes at home so high. We, I turn off most of my heaters 
much more diligently when I'm not at home. Um, up until quite late in December, I didn't turn my heat on at all, but we did have a very, very warm November. Um, right now, my heaters are turned way down again. I wear more sweaters. We all are just kind of wearing more sweaters. So, yeah, but it doesn't feel terrible. I mean, it's interesting because my mother is visiting for the holidays and she was told before she left that the Germans are shivering and cutting down trees, which is silly. You know, no, you don't see it so much, but um, there are subtle differences, yes, like the ones I mentioned. Kimberly Bradley in Berlin, thank you very much for joining us today and Happy New Year. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Let's finally hear from Monaco's Andrew Muller on what we learned this week. We learned this week of what felt ominously like the arrival of 2023's guiding metaphor. For we, well specifically the citizens of the English seaside settlement of Scarborough, learned rather more than they might have wished to vis-à-vis the sexual id of the walrus. For we learned in the ebbing hours of 2022 that the shoreline of Scarborough's harbour had been unexpectedly adorned by a large male Arctic walrus. Which proceeded, presumably by way of relaxing after its long swim, to indulge in actions which caused onlooking parents to frantically improvise placatory answers to the innocent wide-eyed question, Mummy and or Daddy, what is the walrus doing? As if this wasn't sufficient to thoroughly remove the romance from the looming New Year for Scarborough's, local authorities decided to cancel the town's New Year fireworks for fear of alarming the creature, or perhaps just putting him off his stroke. We further learned that the locals had named the walrus Thor, as indeed he will be if he doesn't give it a rest. We're here all year. Try the clams, cockles and mussels, which we learned while researching this bit is what walruses eat. Satirical, yet informative. We learned anyway that Thor had wearied of what Scarborough had to offer fairly swiftly, wouldn't be the first, etc., and had continued north, next spotted in Blythe, napping on a pontoon at a local yacht club. And we learned, or at least deduced, that Thor had clearly done some preparatory research before embarking upon his voyage along England's northeast coast, for he had wisely skipped Hartlepool. This observation is not any reflection on modern-day Hartlepool, and a big hello to our many listeners there, but an extremely cheap joke alluding to the persistent legend that during the Napoleonic Wars of some while ago, the denizens of Hartlepool tried, convicted, sentenced, and hanged a shipwrecked monkey in the belief that it was a French spy. So it is anyone's guess what the Hartlepoolians would have made of an entire walrus. However... Sticking with the subject of bellicose oafish, mannerless and somewhat corpulent creatures fleeing northwards, we learned that recently unelected Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro was not minded to stick around and hand over the pertinent ceremonial sash to his successor, as a good sport should. 
We learn that like many a cranky, tangerine-hued retiree before him, Bolsonaro had decamped to Florida, the and finally state, and that led us to learn, not for the first time, that there are few more reliable ways to pad out a whimsical news monologue than typing the phrase Florida man into Google News, from which we learned that a Florida man has been summonsed after attending a basketball game with a Pomeranian dog dyed to resemble the Pokemon character Pikachu. Solid start to 2023, Florida man, and we, for one whimsical news monologue, are very much looking forward to another productive year of working together. Can I take your order, please? But we digress. We further learned from Bolsonaro's Florida flit something of the culinary preferences of the runaway president after he was spotted dining in a Kentucky Fried Chicken outlet, an image which furnished us with two possible punchlines. One was about cannibalism, chicken-eating-chicken sort of thing, which to be honest may still need work, the other along the lines that Bolsonaro perhaps wished to interact with the only colonel who will still take his orders. Probably what's easiest all round is if you download the file of this episode, clip out the gag you like least, and then play it again. Why should we do all the work? And we learned that every indication is that the United States Republican Party intends to spend this year, as it has spent the several years preceding, having a normal one. Thank you, Madam Clerk. I rise today to nominate Kevin McCarthy as Speaker of the People's House. We learn not only of the lengths to which Congressional Republicans as a whole will go to enable themselves to continue brawling over absolute nonsense instead of doing any actual governing or anything, but we also learned that the GOP spiral into lunacy may have some further helter to skelter, judging by the quality of their new intake. For we learned quite a lot about this guy. Look, I understand everybody wants to nitpick at me. Specifically, we learned that George Santos, now representing New York's 3rd District, and well done New York's 3rd District, is not counter to various claims he made while campaigning, a university graduate, a property tycoon, a Wall Street financier, Jewish, the son of a 9-11 victim, or possibly actually called George. We learned that he is, however, wanted in Brazil for using a stolen checkbook. Still, if there's one thing we have learned before now, and from which we can derive considerable consolation, it's that clowns, frauds and grifters from New York hardly ever get anywhere in American politics. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thanks to Andrew for his weekly update. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. And our studio manager was Adam Heaton. The Briefing is back on Monday at the same time. I am Markus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening.